0: This is the Heidi Harris Show podcast. I do these a couple of times a week. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. You can also find me live Sunday nights on 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis, 7 to 9 p.m. During the week, I do videos. I call them Headlines with Heidi and other podcasts. And you can find all of that at HeidiHarris.com. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Heidi Harris Show. Recently, I read a great book, by Dr. Aaron Cariotti. It's called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Now, let me start by saying that even though I interview some people who've written books, I only interview people whose books I find fascinating and whose information is useful to my audience. Trust me, I get a lot of pitches for books and authors and I ignore them <laughs> or turn them down. But this book was great. I've been following Dr. Cariotti since the beginning of the pandemic, really get that, pandemic because he has been a cultural hero standing up against tyranny. It actually cost him his job of 15 years. He'll talk about that, but this is really important that you hear how scary things may get. Dr. Kariaghi, welcome to the Heidi Hair Show.
1: Thanks, Heidi. It's great to be with you.
0: So people who don't know, you need to understand you're a psychiatrist, and you mm-hmm. were directing ethics at, at UC Irvine at the time. Talk a little bit about right. that, and then we'll get into the book.
1: Yeah, so I I had spent my entire 15 year career as an academic physician, professor in the School of Medicine at UC Irvine, where, as you mentioned, I also directed the medical ethics program, chaired the ethics committee at the hospital, helped develop all of our COVID pandemic policies for all of the UCs, the entire system, all the branch campuses, up until the vaccine mandate policy, where the medical ethicists and our committee was not consulted very strangely. And I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal when universities started uh, promoting vaccine mandates. They were really the first institutions to do this, if if folks remember back to 2021. I published a piece in in, uh, the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical. And I knew that the University of California was considering instituting a vaccine mandate. So I I came out publicly and criticized that policy. Uh, A few weeks later, the university finalized their policy and i saw people getting steamrolled i saw people who should have been allowed to get medical exemptions not being able to get medical exemptions for reasons that we can get into later Um, i saw people that had conscience-based objections uh, who had no recourse i saw people that had uh, religious uh, uh, objections whose uh, religious exemptions were being denied and i felt that i had to stand up and do something that I couldn't credibly call myself a medical ethicist if I was in a position where I could speak out publicly um, against a policy that at my own institution was harming people. So uh, I filed a case in federal court challenging the university's vaccine mandate on constitutional grounds, arguing that it violated our equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment, uh, particularly for people that had natural immunity like I did. Duh. Right. (laughs) That case, actually, Heidi, is still in federal court at the appellate level. Hmm. Um, The CDC has now endorsed my, finally, endorsed my central position in the lawsuit, which is we shouldn't discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated because uh, the vaccines don't stop infection and transmission and natural immunity, which most people have now, is quite robust. Uh, but the university is is holding strong. Not only do they have a vaccine mandate in place, they have a booster mandate in place. Wow. Um, but long story short, uh, shortly after I filed that lawsuit, uh, they put me on what they called investigatory leave. A month after that, they put me on unpaid suspension. A month after that, they fired me. So they, they basically moved to dismiss me as quickly as possible.
0: But not only that, it, it, it's even well, that's outrageous enough, but they also wouldn't allow you to see people privately talk about that. That's unbelievable.
1: Yeah, so the university pulled all kinds of uh, tricks to try to constrain my ability to earn a living. So right. when I was on unpaid suspension, they were also arguing that I wasn't allowed to consult uh, with outside entities, I wasn't allowed to open a private practice so that I could see my patients. They were trying to basically exercise complete control over me and squeeze my ability to earn a living. And I'm the primary breadwinner uh, for a family of five children. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was uh, this was a way to apply a lot of uh, pressure to me um, during this uh, this whole period of quote unquote disciplinary action and suspension. Um, And so the university was really making an attempt to force me to resign. So that they wouldn't have to fire me. Um, But I refused to do that. And so they ended up having to take that action against me. And I think that's eventually going to come back uh, to bite them. I know that there's been disparate treatment. There were other unvaccinated people that they were willing to accommodate and they made room for. um, You know, there's people they allowed to work full time from home, which I could have arranged. Uh, my work in order to do that. I was willing to go on unpaid sabbatical for two years, um, so long as they didn't fire me just, you know, just in order to maintain my position there. But, you know, of course, after I challenged them publicly, um, they were in no mood to, uh, you know, try to work out a, a suitable arrangement with me. And, um, and in the end, uh, you know, I ended up sort of sacrificing my career in academic medicine but i don't re- I, you know i don't regret doing it no. uh, i would do it all over again i'm i'm more convinced every month that it was the right thing to do <laughs> yeah uh, the argument i made against the vaccines was primarily ethical it had to do with the principle of informed consent which is being violated uh but of course with declining efficacy with more and more information about uh vaccine injuries and vaccine adverse effects um you know the, the The fact that these vaccines were not all that they were touted to be is, you know, becoming more clear with each passing with each passing month. And so in retrospect, uh, I think it was a good decision, um, not only from a medical ethics point of view, but also from a public health point of view, that people needed to maintain the right to decide what goes into their body. And the parents needed to maintain the right to make medical decisions on behalf of their children who are not old enough to consent.
0: My guest is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. His brand new book is The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. He has been a hero and a champion defending the rights of people to make their own choices about the vaccine since day one, and it cost him dearly, but he's not backing down. Doctor, you talk a lot about history, the history of the eugenics movement, obviously Nazi Germany, things that have gone on in other dictatorships. I'll let people read that for themselves. But the kind of cruelty And isolation that went on during this pandemic was certainly not unique to history. I had some friends whose father was dying in Downey, California. They live in Las Vegas. They drove about four hours down there. And the hospital would not let them in because they weren't vaccinated. Forget about the masks and the the gloves and all that. They would not let them in. Finally, when they caused a stir, they let the son, this is my friend's husband, in, who's an adult, to see his father. They gave him 15 minutes, and then the security guard came up to the room and took his hand off of his dying father's hand and said, your 15 minutes are up. I mean, how can anyone be so cruel? I mean, he's not contagious unless he's in the hospital for 16 minutes. This is just based on cruelty. Can you address that, doctor, as a psychiatrist from the psychological perspective?
1: Yeah, so this and, and so many, really millions of other stories like it are just so cruel and inhumane when yes. you step back from the um, f- from the climate of fear, uh, from the climate of control that we were all subjected to during the pandemic. But uh, many things happened in 2020 that I think prepared the way for this level of cruelty in 2020 and 2021. Uh, one was, first of all, the climate of fear that I mentioned, which was deliberately wasn't just an effect of a novel virus It was deliberately promoted by governments. We know that now governments Mm -hmm. deploying wartime propaganda techniques to increase the level of fear in a population, which is an absolute abusive power under any circumstances during an emergency. You need leaders during a crisis. You need leaders who could provide calm and reasoned, uh, policies but also messages to the public so that people are not unnecessarily terrified so we had lockdowns for the better part of a year even more in some places where people basically were isolated from one another they were lacking in all forms of social support they they, they couldn't not only they couldn't visit family and in, in the hospital they couldn't gather publicly uh, Mm -hmm. with family and friends. And uh, after a year of that kind of emotional and psychological abuse, people were prepared to do just about anything to get out of that aversive condition. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had the fear. We had the uh, psychological effects of the social isolation and lockdowns and inability to work, the massive mental health harms that came from that. I published a piece, which I describe in the book, uh, in uh, back in uh, October of 2020 called The Other Pandemic, which is about the mental health harms that we were seeing from lockdowns. In, in the month of June that year, one quarter, 25% of college-age students had seriously contemplated suicide wow. in the last month. Not at, not at some point in their lifetime, but in, in the month of June 2020, mm. a quarter of... 18 to 24 year olds had seriously considered suicide. That that was a staggering um, and horrifying statistic that our policies, which were focused only on one illness and not looking at human health as a whole, uh, they they entirely ignored the effects of that. So we had a tripling of depressive disorders uh, that was found in, in a CDC study that month. We had a quadrupling of anxiety disorders. We had a massive increase in opioid-related deaths, overdoses, in alcohol-related deaths. The the opioid crisis was a serious crisis back in 2018, before the pandemic, that claimed almost 70,000 lives a year, which was a tragedy. Back in uh, in 1999, that number was less than 20,000. So we had a huge uh, opioid crisis, uh, drug overdose crisis. And we took gasoline, uh, uh, we and poured it on that on yeah. that fire with the lockdowns. So that seventy thousand number jumped in one year in twenty twenty to uh, almost hundred thousand deaths by drug overdose. So you didn't hear about that additional thirty thousand deaths. All you saw was the the COVID numbers being presented night after night right. on the news.
0: Exactly right. And one of the things that you talk about in the book you know, yes, we're on the right side of history about these vaccines, vaccine, uh, no question about that. But one of the things you talk about in the book is how completely orchestrated this entire thing was. It wasn't about a a pandemic. It was orchestrated from the get go. And you explain it very clearly in the book. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because this was not a reaction to, oh, my gosh, we have a virus that's escaped. This was all in the works way ahead of time.
1: That's right. So for the last 20 years, we've seen an increased, um, militarization of public health and in a welding of the three elements that okay what is the biosecurity state that you're talking about right, Dr. Exactly. well one, one way to break it down is it's the welding of a militarized public health with digital technologies of surveillance and control uh, and the police powers of the state right and one concrete example from the pandemic of, of those three elements coming together is the vaccine passport system right the having to show a qr code on my phone to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant or a public event, or to get back into my own country of (sighs) origin. And this QR code demonstrates that I've done what I was told to do by unelected bureaucrats or sometimes by the person who runs the HR department at my corporation, including injecting a novel substance into my body that I may or may not want, right? The idea of having to do this back in 2018, 2019 would have been insane to most Americans. But after that year of lockdowns and the emotional effects of that, people were ready and willing to adopt things that in any other circumstances, they would have just rejected out of hand.
0: That's important. Um, I don't want to gloss over that. That's really important because you're right. They they were so willing to do anything after what had happened to them. We couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. I'll do whatever you say. Just let me get back to normal again. I'll get a shot to get on a cruise ship. I'll do whatever I have to do. You're right. They conditioned us for that year. Then boom, there's a shot. And we're so willing, whatever it takes to get back to normal.
1: But there were a lot of uh, moneyed interests and there were a lot of people who Uh, gained additional powers during the pandemic uh, that advocated for the misguided policies that we had. So just a simple example, um, I'll pick on Amazon, but you could say the same about any of the big tech corporations. Amazon, we know, lobbied uh, states on the West Coast to lock down when that policy was being considered. Mm -hmm. Now, is Amazon an expert on public health? No. (laughs) Well, why did they care about lockdowns? It was very good for their business model, right? right? When you're locked down at home, uh, you're ordering more things online because you can't go to the local store to buy goods and services. And uh, what is more, Amazon's competition in the form of small businesses who sell things, these were going out of business because those folks couldn't work. They were not considered essential during the lockdown. So Amazon's stock and their profits uh, and Jeff Bezos' personal wealth soared during the lockdowns, as did Google and the other big tech firms that made a killing when schooling, uh, business, basically all of our social interactions went online and we were confined to interacting with people just behind the screen. Now, I I love this technology. We're using it right now, right? It's a great way to communicate, but it can't be the only way that human beings communicate. That's not good for our physical and mental health. So there was that there was also what I described in the book is the misuse of the legal mechanism of a declared state of emergency. And this is an issue that not a lot of Americans are aware of. And I think it's very important at the federal level. We're still operating under a declared state of emergency that's renewed every 90 days by Javier Becerra, the secretary of Department of Health and Human Services, with the endorsement of the president. And during a state of emergency at the federal level, the president gains an additional 128 powers that he would not otherwise have. So the executive at the federal level, the executive at the state level, state governors likewise gain additional executive powers during a declared state of emergency. So which, you know, many states are still operating under at the state level, including here in California, my home state. Now, President Biden announced uh, several weeks ago in 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over. and many people in this administration sort of panicked and told right. him, you you can't say that yet. Well, why is that? Well, obviously if the pandemic is over, we have to sundown this uh, state of emergency that you've declared at the federal level and that would involve relinquishing a lot of powers that we gained during the pandemic. Right. So um we've kind of instituted a new paradigm of governance that involves jumping from one declared emergency to the next, right? You see other other viral threats or potential public health issues. Monkeypox. Uh,
0: Monkeypox. I didn't have that on my exactly. dance card for 2022. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's not just viruses. I describe in the book how, over the last few years, for example, climate change has been reframed from an environmental issue to a public health issue. And there's yes. many people now that are putting forward serious proposals. You know, politicians in power and academics um, at, at various institutions that are arguing for things like rolling lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis um, and so there there will be another declared public health emergency whether of a viral threat real or man-made or of some other threat from a computer virus to climate change to the energy crisis uh, that will that will involve corporate and uh, you know, public, interests uh using that as a lever or fulcrum or as an opportunity to enhance their power uh, or to consolidate their power to consolidate their their monopoly over a particular market and i think it's very important for americans to to wake up and realize that while the COVID pandemic may be mostly in the rearview mirror the whole infrastructure that was put in place during the pandemic is still in place.
0: My guest is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He's got a brand new book out called The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State.
1: In a sense, COVID was just the beginning.
0: Your last chapter is epilogue, Seattle 2030. I don't want to give anything away, but I read this and I was going, oh my gosh, I hope that's (laughs) not true, I hope that's not. But we've already got people talking in in various countries about social credit. And and you talk about that in the book, and that's important because when it comes to social credit, they could control every aspect of your life. Or if somebody had records on you, everything you've ever done, talk, doctor, about how that could be used to prevent you from working, from living certain places, uh, more so than it already does. It's pretty scary.
1: Yeah, yeah. so in chapter three of the new abnormal, I I describe the the two things that I think are the next steps in the advancement of this regime, which are uh, central bank digital currencies and digital IDs tied to biometric Right. data and I'll I'll let folks read about the details of that okay. in the book to understand why those things are are a threat to Have our
0: a glass of wine first folks. I recommend Yeah, exactly. Care. It's but, scary but it, you know but doctor this is happening. This is not far-fetched. That's what's so frightening yeah. about it.
1: Well, Heidi, I'm really glad that you mentioned the epilogue because it's my personal favorite part of the book. It's an imaginative <laughs> exercise in what things will look like 8 years from now, but it's not imaginative in one sense. And and I say at the very beginning, kind of in a footnote there, that all of the technologies I describe in the epilogue, which is called Seattle 2030, those technologies are already available. That's
0: what's so scary, doctor. They're already here. Right.
1: They're not yet deployed on a widespread scale, but they're already available. And there are plans for their deployment. So this is not science fiction in terms of I'm making up kind of- what might happen down the road. But I'm just thinking in that actually the not too distant future. This is a timeline that people can project ahead. Okay, eight years is not that long. Um, when these technologies are rolled out, if we do not stand up and push back against them, this is what your life will look like. And the first part of that sort of shows the conveniences and the upsides of these technologies, which is how they're going to be mm-hmm. sold. But as you progress through the story that I tell there, I think you readers will hopefully come to see uh the real threats to uh to freedom and to democracy that these things pose. So if people can persevere to the end of the book um and then grab a it. couple of glasses of wine and enjoy the epilogue, <laughs> well, I you know I think it's it's trying to put uh trying to put a, a real story to help people to imagine exactly uh the kinds of things that I'm worried about in in the new abnormal.
0: If you'd said before the pandemic started, who's gonna buy into it? People I would never have put in that category stunned yep. me, doctor. Intelligent yep. people. I saw a PhD the other day put on Twitter. Twitter's so much fun for these crazies. Uh, put on Twitter, oh, well, that vaccines were never supposed to, to stop you from getting it. Well, so if I give my dog a rabies shot, it's okay if my dog gets a small case, of rabies <laughs> doctor. I mean, how can these people turn this yep. around and make this normal in their brains? How could this have happened so quickly? So I'm sure you saw a lot of people who you went, what? what? You're buying into this? Talk about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the, the group think and, and what Matthias Desmet had has called the mass formation, this sort yes. of uh this sort of collective sleepwalking and, and almost hypnotic state that many people have, have fallen into, which is very hard to break through. This does not seem to be correlated with anyone's level of intelligence. So you, right. you have, you know, highly intelligent people that have been um I don't know what the word is. Brainwashed. Uh, I, I
0: don't know. Yeah, it's very warm. that have really
1: lost their capacity for common sense and logical reasoning, and um, and the, the resistance to a lot of this actually cuts across the political spectrum and and cuts oh, yeah. across various right. levels of education and so forth. So I was I was surprised and edified by some people and disappointed by other people. For yes. example, at the university, who you know, folks that I thought were friends and I thought would. Uh, Be supportive, at least quietly supportive and reach out to me when I was going through all of this, who, you know, more or less abandoned me and other people who I didn't expect um, to to be sympathetic and to reach out who who did. And actually, I made many new friends at the university. Mm -hmm. Again, people from across the political and ideological spectrum who reached out um, and offered support um, in, in various ways. And so, you know, when you go through something like this, you, you learn a lot about people. You learn a lot about, um, you know, people's moral courage and their integrity. You learn a lot um, if you're personally impacted by one of these policies, and adversely affected by mandates or, you know, a vaccine injury. You learn who your friends are. Uh, and and sometimes, you know, sad to say, you, you learn uh, that some people that you thought were friends um, uh, you know, are not are not either reasonable or loyal or fundamentally decent people. So, the the pandemic was kind of an unmasking, if I can use that metaphor. <laughs> but metaphorically, not not talking about the masks on the face, it it unmasked a lot about people's character. Mm-hmm. Um, it unmasked a lot about our institutions and the degree to which um uh corporations and public institutions and public health institutions um uh, you know are welded together in ways that are very you know not good right. for freedom and democracy uh and also the degree to which many of our public institutions our educational institutions have been compromised or corrupted mm-hmm. um by uh, moneyed interests or uh by uh, you know particular uh, power brokers That are that are basically using these institutions for, you know, not for the public welfare, not for the public good, not for public health, uh, but for other purposes.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting, too, because a lot of people will say we also we also learn what the carrot is for a lot of people. A lot of people said, oh, well, I got one shot, but I'm not getting a booster or I got two shots, but I'm not getting a booster. And I say, why not? They, they told you, I mean, I'm not talking about people who thought it was okay. I'm talking about people who had questions uh-huh. about it, but then they caved because they wanted to take a trip or they wanted this or that or the other. And well, you caved for that. So we already know what your price is now. So what makes you think you're not going to take a booster? You know, they're all self-righteous yeah. about it now. You know, you're going to cave. And now big brother is watching all of that and saying, okay, so this is what it takes to make everybody take a shot.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right uh on the other hand it's not too late to stand up and draw a line in the sand uh there will be more coming things that that i describe in the new abnormal uh i think we need to stand up against digital ids central bank digital currencies some of these next steps in the rollout of the sort of biomedical security paradigm of social life and of governance and so you know, if you have regrets about giving in on some of these issues for the sake of convenience or, you know, for the sake of travel or being able to do things, uh, you know, now is a good time to kind of come out of that right. state and and put a stake in the ground and you know stand up for your rights in terms of. Uh, the next step in this process.
0: Yeah. And you talk about that too. The book is The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. You need to read this. Dr. Curiotti, you were one of my early heroes when it came to the pandemic, standing up, standing for common sense. And I wish you much success with this book. It's very, very timely, very important.
1: Thanks, Heidi. Enjoyed our conversation.
0: Good stuff. I like to highlight the cultural heroes, because I'll tell you what, they're getting fewer and farther between. Don't forget, you can catch me Sunday night live, 97.1 FM Talk in St. Louis, 7 to 9 p.m. During the week, I do podcasts like this one. You can find them, Heidi Harris Show, anywhere you get podcasts, or HeidiHarris.com. I also do video interviews and things during the week. You can find that all at HeidiHarris.com. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Heidi Harris Show. Until we meet again, remember... You were created for a purpose. Find it and live it. Here's Tony Scottwell. (laughs)